Do two people. Hmm. All right. Are you good to go? Yeah. I I had to rush through okay. the last part of it, but I have the, the four meta narratives at least somewhere. Great. Yep. No, that was a really good article. Well done, Sam. One that they don't tell you is that it's the Freemasons, but. <laughs> well, that, well, that's because the Freemasons wrote this article, so they can't like self you know, identify that. They have to distract everyone. That's how they win. Is this going to be one of those things where like, I started saying that the peasants shouldn't read and then more and more started believing it. Whereas like you, and I started out ironically, whereas you started out ironically accusing the Freemasons of everything. And then like more and more, you actually sort of kind of start believing it and you just end up shifting to the right of the uh, Anglo Catholic uh, spectrum. Yeah. I mean, how long until you start screaming out? I'm not in schism. Listen, one of the Pope's favorite novels is all about the Freemasons taking over the world and carpet bombing or uh, firebombing the Rome and killing the Pope and the Cardinals. So I'm I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm in good company. That sounds like just another version of the the Van Helsing anime, except with Freemasons instead of Nazi vampires. Yeah, kinda. Actually, the book was so. Did I tell you about it? The book's called The Lord of the World, and it was written by a Monsignor in like 1926 or something, and it predicts World War II strategic bombing. Um, and it's set actually in like a, like a three state world after the socialists win, um, in, in all their respective countries. So it's like 1984. Hello everyone and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem With Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. And we've finally made it to the final chapter of The Master and His Emissary. Emissary. Wow. Emissary. Wow. Way to take us to the finish line. Uh, The Master and His Emissary. The Master Betrayed, I believe is the title of the chapter. We finally made it. Uh, Yeah, boy. How are how are we feeling? You know, it's been uh, it's been quite the journey. I'm kind of kind of sad to see it, it, it end. On mm-hmm. the other hand, I am looking forward to reading chapters that aren't 70 pages long. That's going to be nice. You know, the crazy thought that I had was that after this podcast, and probably I'll take it off again. So, like, maybe it won't quite go up on my shelf until after the one that we do with Zach. But I'm going to put this book on my shelf and then not open it for a long time it's like that's unbelievable it's been like on my desk it's been on my bedside it's been on my little side table where i keep the books that i'm reading for like a year and it's finally like being put away and it's like holy crap i that's it's i don't know if i'm ready for this i know right like this has been a year and a half of a journey through and like we've gone Mm -hmm. over everything from phenomenology to neuroscience and like each it's it's funny because like this is a Really, really kind of a fun book to read like the topics are interesting i don't mm-hmm. think i've ever been at a point where i'm like dude you're so boring you're so dry it's really fascinating stuff to read it's just so freaking long it takes so long to get through yeah yep which if we ever get to charles charles taylor i've heard the exact opposite yeah that he is dry as all get out does not stay on topic and well except he's also long longer it, it's crazy. So I, I picked up uh, After Virtue um, a couple of days ago when I was uh, trying to sum it up because um, McGill Chris referenced some person that I knew McIntyre had. And it was crazy flipping through the pages and being like, oh my gosh, this would take me so little time to read through. Whereas like when we were reading it through, it's like, oh my gosh, this is horrible. This is so long. But compared to McGill Chris, holy cow, that guy flies. <laughs> so there was something it's the that size I was... of the text on the pages, I think. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So on an unrelated note, there was something I was going to do as my rant, but then I substituted it out last minute for something else. So I wanted to bring it up here. 
um, because I thought it was interesting and it and it, it did make me mad. So I have a question for you too. So like hypothetically, you meet someone, you've hung out with them for just a few minutes, you know, you have like a couple minutes worth of of interaction. Maybe you see like a text that they sent or a text that they receive. You see the books in their bag. You know, they tell a few short anecdotes about work. What is like a flag that would signal to you that the person that you're dealing with is just like a consummate psychopath? Like the thing that makes you think like, oh my God, this person is the worst and is going to murder someone in the near future. Like what are the things that you look for? Because I have my answer that happened to me in the elevator today, but I'm wondering what's your answer? One of the books is Atlas Shrugged. Good. Good answer. Sam? I would say reading Nietzsche, but not reading like an academic version of Nietzsche, but like just like a pop version. That's just like, you know, just reading it for the icon of reading it. No, okay. And not really understanding it. Can I, um, well, so like, yeah, so can I amend that to say, but reading a self-help book based on Nietzsche, like Nietzsche tells us how to live your best life. <laughs> like that, that would be, that, that's, that's how you would know. You avoid like, that guy at all speaking, costs. So like uh, speaking, speaking like Zarathustra. There we go. <laughs> um, all right. So, so, so my answer yeah. is just what I happened to see on the, um, on the elevators I was riding with someone today. And someone texting, and the font they were using was Comic Sans, and I'm just, and, and my my mind just broke just just a little bit, and I got off the elevator as fast as I possibly could. Good call. Because yeah, that's that's a that is a, a dark sign. But speaking of dark signs, uh, for me, what I'm drinking today is this lovely uh, porter here in the glass that Stephen, you and I hey. actually brewed uh, a little over a month ago, actually yeah, a month was. and a half. That was, man, time time flies. Uh, it's that a little does. bit light. It's a little bit light, like it has a nice dark color and it's refreshing, but it's only like uh, 4.5%. I didn't have a kitchen scale, so we couldn't quite get the um, uh, the malt extract uh, right. Um, and because of that, I think a bit of the, the Cascade hops comes through, so it, it tastes just like a, a tiny bit like an IPA. Hmm. And I think that's supposed to be overruled, uh, but then we had just the weak wart, so that just didn't happen. Um, I can report steven that i did get the priming sugar right so it didn't explode when i opened it so when you do come out i'll I'll (laughs) save a bottle and it won't explode in your hands please do. Uh, but but sam what are what are we drinking i'm also having a a beer tonight i'm having um an omission brewing brewing company uh pale ale um this is a fun fun beer because it's actually um gluten-free they do some kind of weird scientific process to remove the gluten from the brew so it's like actual beer but just just without gluten which i can't have gluten so it's it's really it's really great i've actually forgotten that and i, I didn't know well, you well i definitely have an objection to gnostic beverages so that would be non-alcoholic beer or decaffeinated mm-hmm. coffee this seems like yes. okay like like this is a reasonable thing to do to a beer like I, i'm not instantly opposed like i am to the other two instances um because it yeah and it actually it tastes just fine like it's mm-hmm. it's not it, it tastes fine. It's got all the alcohol. It's got all the hops. It's mm-hmm. it's beer. It just they've just done something to it. So okay, yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's the only beer I can have. So this and there's a couple other free ones, but this is the most consistently good one I found. And that's when Sam switched to just hard liquor. Stephen, what are you <laughs> drinking? Uh, well, I'm not quite as uh, cool as you guys. I don't have beer, but I do have a glass of wine, uh, $3.50 wine. I don't have a Trader Joe's nearby, but I do have a Bridge Street Market that has a uh, lovely white wine, Gato Negro. And um, yeah, it's not that great, but it's, uh, it does the trick, I guess. Oh, yeah. Oh, I can right. see the bottle behind you. Black Cat. Fancy. Mm-hmm. Very nice. 
Ironic yeah. for a white wine, but I mean, you know, it works. Yeah, if it works, it works. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of working, uh, nope, I don't get anything. Chapter, Stephen, go. Well, speaking of working, I've been working on my summary, and I apologize in advance, guys. I know that I have the reputation for being long-winded. This one's going to be a doozy, guys, so just strap yourselves in, all right? Okay, so, Master and Emissary, last chapter. Sadly, the Master has been betrayed by his most trusted emissary. If McGillicris' thesis is true, let's ponder a moment what the world would look like with the left hemisphere at the reins. According to McGillicris, quote, We could expect, for a start, that there would be a loss of the broader picture, and a substitution of a more narrowly focused, restricted, but detailed view of the world, making it perhaps difficult to maintain a coherent overview, end quote. This ever-narrowing attention would result in, quote, an increasing specialization and technolizing, technicalizing of knowledge, end quote i.e. knowledge gained through experience becomes mere data gathering, a collection of disjoint facts empty of content. The knowledge gained through experience becomes suspect and eventually, quote, replaced by tokens or representations, formal systems to be evidenced by paper qualifications, end quote. The nature of the expert changes, quote, expertise, which is what actually makes an expert from the Latin expertus, one who is experienced, would be replaced by expert, knowledge that would have, in fact, to be based on theory, end quote. Eventually, quote, skills themselves would be reduced to algorithmic procedures which could be drawn up and, if necessary, regulated by administrators, since without that, the mistrustful tendencies of the left hemisphere could not be certain that those nebulous skills were being evenly and correctly applied, Uh, end quote. Uh, Abstraction and reification would both increase. Material things, the world, and ourselves are viewed more conceptually and seen as mere things. Quote, the world as a whole would become more virtualized, and our experience of it would be increasingly through meta-representations of one kind or another. Fewer people would find themselves doing work involving contact with anything in the real lived world, rather than with plans, strategies, paperwork, management, and bureaucratic procedures, end quote. This is the bureaucracy described by Peter Berger, in which there is a complete loss of the uniqueness of its constituents. Concerning reification, the metaphor for viewing the world would, become increase, would increasingly become that of a machine. Quote, increasingly the lived world will be modeled on the mechanical, end quote. This has a profound implication on the very questions we ask when viewing the world. Quote, when we deal with a machine, there are three things we want to know. How much, can it, how much it can do, how fast it can do it, and with what degrees of precision, end quote. The left only cares about the what. The concept of how, which is the domain of the right, becomes lost. Quantity supplants quality. With the proliferation of technology leaning into the left's desire to dominate nature for its own pleasure, Berger and colleagues predict several, several components arising. Mechanis- mechanisticity, measurability, componentiality, and an abstract frame of reference. Sorry, two of those words are made up by McGilchrist. So mechanisticity, quote, the development of a system that permits things to be reproduced endlessly and enforces some submergence of the individual in a large organization or product line, end quote. Measurability, quote, the insistence on quantification, not qualification, end quote. Com- componentiality, quote, reality reduced to self-contained units, end quote. The abstract frame of reference can easily be rephrased as a loss of context. Philosophically, there are also ramifications. Ethics becomes utilitarian calculus, also the result of the Enlightenment's project of justifying, uh, justifying morality, which, if the listener will recall, was distinctly left hemisphere dominated was a distinctly left hemisphere dominated time, and also destined to fail. Uh, the world becomes viewed as quote a collection of bits and pieces apparently th- randomly thrown together. Its organization and therefore meaning would come only through what we added to it through systems designed to maximize utility, end quote. Because things are so me- mechanistic, quote, people in such a society would find it hard to understand the higher values in Shaler's hierarchy, except in terms of ultimate utility, and there would be a derogation of the higher values, 
and a cynicism about their status, end quote. All of the above leads to a society that emphasizes the material at the expense of the living, which in turn breaks down social relationships, arguably society itself. Quote, Social cohesion and the bonds between person and person, and just as importantly between person and place, the context in which each person belongs would be neglected, perhaps actively disrupted, as both inconvenient and incomprehensible to the left hemisphere acting on its own. End quote. Exploitation becomes the mode of relationships rather than a cooperation due to depersonalization. Sorry, the de- depersonalization being uh, the result of exploitation, uh, not cooperation. Uh, and this, in turn, leads to resentment that, quote, would lead to an emphasis on uniformity and equality, not not as just one desirable to be balanced with others, but as the ultimate desirable, transcending all others, end quote. He goes on to say, quote, as a result, individualities would be ironed out and identification would be by categories, socioeconomic groups, races, sexes, and so on, which would also feel themselves to be implicitly or explicitly in competition with, resentful of, one another, end quote. Governments begin reaching towards totalitarianism, with liberty in the abstract increasing, though he notes this is only for Machiavellian reasons, while personal liberty decreases. Panoptical control becomes the norm, see closed-circuit TV monitoring, private information and communication being recorded, etc. In essence, the abstract state becomes much more trustworthy than the concrete individual, and the responsibility of society becomes more and more the place of the state rather than the individual. Families and other important relationships within society, such as priests, teachers, and doctors, quote, which transcend that which can be quantified or regulated, and in fact depend on a degree of altruism, end quote, engendered suspicion. The left hemisphere misunderstands altruism as self-interest, and therefore can't wrap its mind around these relationships as anything other than power games. I'm looking at you, Ayn Rand. These relationships become increasingly under the thumb of bureaucratic control. Um, The teaching industry in particular comes to mind. Uh, The society imagined by the left hemisphere would emphasize control. Quote, accidents and illnesses, since they are beyond our control, would therefore be particularly threatening and would, where possible, be blamed on others, since they would look like a threat to one's capacity to control one's own life. End quote. Death is the greatest affront to the left hemisphere's need to control things, and so there would become a preoccupation with safety, security, and certainty. And here I'll emphasize that this uh, book was written back in 2009 or 10, I think, and then updated in 2018, well before the pandemic, so he's not kind of retroactively going back and filling in things. Um, reasonableness becomes replaced with rationality. The idea of common sense trumping logic becomes absurd, and reasonableness itself is viewed as unintelligible. Loss of insight, unwillingness to take responsibility would also manifest itself, reflecting the left hemisphere's oftentimes unwarranted optimism that it is always right. Intolerance and unwillingness to change one viewpoint would become the norm. There would be a resentment and dismantling of awe and wonder. McGillicris cites Weber, but here we can also call back to Taylor when he uses the phrase disenchanted world. Religion is viewed as a fantasy, value and meaning become lost, leaving only, quote, a sense of nausea and boredom before life, end quote, and leading, quote, to a craving for novelty and stimulation, end quote. Art becomes conceptual, losing its metaphoric power. Visual art loses depth, normalizing bizarre perspectives. Music becomes little more than rhythm, the only aspect of music that the left excels at. Dance becomes solipsistic rather than communal. Cultural history and tradition, being of the past, becomes useless at, useless at best and mockable at worst. The body is viewed as a machine. The natural world is fuel for said machine. Finally, quote, technical language, or the language of bureaucratic systems, devoid of any richness of meaning and suggesting a mechanistic world, would increasingly be applied across the board, and might even seem unremarkable when applied to descriptions of the human world and human beings and even the human mind itself, end quote. All of the above sounds eerily familiar, and McGillchrist concludes, quote, this is what the world would look like if the emissary betrayed the master. It's hard to resist the conclusion that his goal is within sight, end quote. But for a moment, let's contemplate 
that the left's worldview may be desirable. McGill Chris asks the important question, can the emissary succeed where, according to him, the master failed? Can the left hemisphere create a world in which it, it at least is happy, if not the right hemisphere? In a word, no. The massive swing over to the left hemisphere's domain in the last century has led to, uh, led to increases in a few things, all of which it prefers. Material goods have uh, increased, affluence is up across the board. Urbanization is also a rising phenomenon. However, once exiting pro poverty level, wealth has little to do with happiness. McGillchrist notes, quote, over the last 25 years, levels of satisfaction with life have actually declined in the U.S., a period during which there has been an enormous increase in prosperity, end quote. This isn't only in the U.S. We've seen this in Europe and Japan as well. Job satisfaction dropped from 44% to 16% in the span of 44 years in the U.S., with similar rates found in Britain. Urbanization is, has also been found to be distinctly linked with social disconnection, which in turn leads to skyrocketing depression found in urbanizing countries across the globe. The importance of social connectedness cannot be overemphasized. Studies have shown, quote, the positive effects of social integration rival the detrimental effects of smoking, obesity, high blood pressure, and physical inactivity, end quote. Apparently, there was a small Italian community in Pennsylvania which drew medical attention in the 40s when it was discovered that they had a rate of heart attacks less than half of the national average, despite a higher-than-average risk factor for same. Alas, the mobile younger generation moved away, social bonds were loosed, and by the 1980s, this phenomenon was no longer the case. Note that wealth and material goods are not bad in and of themselves, and this is where McGillchrist, again, kind of rightly reminds us, the left hemisphere is important. But these, these goods... They're in the domain of the left hemisphere, and that domain, it's the one that wants to grasp and control, but it doesn't know how to integrate them into a holistic value set. The right does. If the right is in charge, it gets the benefits of the left, and they are significant. Few can be happy when they're starving to death. However, the left's mode of, be of being seemingly precludes any real happiness because it does not understand the right's values. So having kind of established that the left can't succeed on its own, uh, we now turn to what are the avenues of escape from this maze of mirrors? Um, there are three main, main avenues of escape uh, that the, from, from this maze that the left creates. The body, the spirit, and art. The body is the thing that connects us to the physical world, something that reminds us that we're not just cerebral. The viewing of the body as a machine, yet another mechanistic cog in the mechanistic machine, is an assault by the left hemisphere who is, quote, at odds with recognizing the inevitable transience of the body, and it's, and it's message that we are mortal, end quote. The body is messy and therefore a subject to scorn in the left's desire for perfection. And we, we've kind of seen this, this increasing metaphor of mechanistic kind of throughout the last, the last hundred years. But what about the spirit? Uh, well, the spirit has been long under attack in the form of the left hemisphere's attack on religion. Though there was a rally under the flag of romanticism, pushing back against the Enlightenment thinking, the pincer attack of communism and capitalism in the last century more than made up for lost time. Consider the, considering the destruction of the Cathedral of Our Lady of Kazan in Moscow, which the Stalinists replaced with the public lavatory, McGillchrist notes the left hemisphere indeed pissed on religion, similar to, to, similar to Duchamp pissing on art with his infamous urinal. He notes in a funny yet sad aside that the left's power, the left's power of metaphor is indeed weak, that the preoccupation with urine and feces found in modern and postmodern art is indicative of the left's lack of metaphorical subtlety. Unwittingly, as a disciple of David Foster Wallace, McGillchrist notes, quote, when we decide not to worship divinity, we do not stop worshiping. We merely find something else less worthy to worship, end quote. Alas, even the Western church isn't exempt from the left's assault, eager as it is to offer material answers to spiritual solutions. And the co-opting of Eastern practices, such as meditation as primarily utilitarian, that is, meditate 15 minutes a day to de decrease blood pressure, shows just how deep this goes. Um, I think Sam actually brought up a, an article on Techno Monks uh, about a year ago, and that strikes me as in 
being very relevant. Uh, McGilchrist concludes that the West could have followed no better mythos than the Christian one. And having lost that, it's fallen to the default, that of the machine, the mythos of the machine. But he has hope that art may yet provide an escape. As Schumann once said of a piece by Bach, quote, if a man had lost all his faith, just hearing it would be enough to restore it, end quote. However, he is also pessimistic in this area. Tracy Emmons' unmade bed, bed being touted as art gives him the sense that we have, quote, lost not just the plot, but our, also, but our sense of the absurd, end quote. Plot being the plot of art, presumably. Now, rolling his eyes at both our jadedness, but also our naivete, he states, quote, My bet is that our age will be viewed in retrospect with amusement as an age remarkable not only for its cynicism, but also for its gullibility, end quote. The cynicism and gullibility being the preoccupation with modern and postmodern art. Uh, yeah, the, 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 so the, the body has been mechanized, the soul ironized, and the left hemisphere now desires to neuter the power of art. But beauty is difficult to pin down. The societies may differ in some sense as to what is beautiful, they all agree that beauty exists and that there is some universal canon that all agree is beautiful. Yet somehow beauty has been disconnected from art with preference to a piece being strong or challenging. Skill in art is also de-emphasized. Anyone looking at Piss Christ will find it difficult to compare it to Salvatore Mundi. Art is not viewed as the height of humanity anymore, uh, the height of humanity being the whole, but rather something everyone, the parts, should be able to do equally. Even when traditional art is viewed in a similar way to religious practices, it is often viewed for its utility. Pieces are viewed to prepare oneself for a board meeting or to acquire such and such state of mind before a vacation. Not that you should long for the thing that they're presenting to you, but that you should grasp the thing that you want. Uh, these three concepts are the bastions of Buber's I-Thou relations, the body, the spirit, and art. Uh, so is there any hope that we may not be trapped eternally in the realm of I-It that the left hemisphere pre uh, presents us? To that, we now turn with Sam. Or, no, with Brevin. Whoever is uh, summarizing. Indeed. Uh, so this second to last part of the chapter is the where do we go from here. Uh, it's literally titled, Is There Room for Hope? Uh, and he has three ideas of where that might come from. Uh, first, he argues uh, against the assumption that things can and will continue in a straight line forever. He makes a contrast in between linear progression and, circ and circular thought, uh, or and. Sorry, let me <laughs> circular thought. Uh, he makes a distinction between linear progression and a circular view of the world. He says that the idea of a linear progression is a very left hemisphere way of viewing things. And he says that many things may appear to be linear, but they are not in fact so. Or if they are linear, they're linear only in a small way. And when you zoom out, it's part of a much larger thing that's more ambiguous, or in many cases, circular. He reminds us that there are no straight lines found in the natural world, not even the horizon. Even that is a curve leading to a circle. Rectangularity is a phenomenon that's only possible under constraint, under specific circumstances. So the idea that the cosmos is a circle centered around God or the divine as a common one throughout cultures and history is a comforting thought, the idea that we aren't just continuing in a straight line, shambling towards our own doom. Eventually, we have to encounter the horizon and loop back around to some healthier version of where we started. So fatalism, interestingly enough, is a left hemisphere idea in and of itself. Second, he considers if the way out is through, that many directions of the world we're in are building their own champion against it behind the scenes in a dialectical manner or some such. In the context of knowledge, for example, we're modern people. We can't unknow what we know. We can't unbite 
the apple from the tree of knowledge and good and evil. But much in the way of the circle, he considers, you know, if we've been cast out of heaven, maybe we can take the long way round. And we've talked about this idea a few different times on the podcast in the context of nostalgia, in the context of romanticism. And there's a couple quotes from this part of the chapter that I thought were relevant. Uh, he says, quote, of what the ancients were happily unconscious, we are necessarily conscious, Hegel seems to say, but we see more. Perhaps as the innocence of the uh, sorry, perhaps as the innocence of the adult where it is achieved is greater than the innocence of a child, though bought at a cost of much painful awareness. End quote. He says that that kind of innocence is rare, but maybe that's our way through. That we're still corrupted in a way, but we found our way back to innocence one way or another. Uh, in another part, he quotes a famous essay called "On the Puppet Theater" by Kleist, and the quote is this quote. Grace appears purest in that human form which either has no consciousness or an infinite one, that is, in a puppet or in a god. And then the character responding, Therefore, I said, somewhat bewildered, we would have to eat again from the tree of knowledge in order to return to a state of innocence. Quite right, he answered, and that's the last chapter in the history of the world. End quote. And as Stephen brought up earlier, David Foster Wallace, I think this is sort of the same idea. If we're afflicted with this self-consciousness that we can't possibly avoid, maybe the way out is through somehow, one way or another, though David Foster Wallace is not necessarily a hopeful example of that. Uh, the final source, the final hope that he talks about is maybe we get help from outside, uh, perhaps uh, Walker Persian, the help comes from abroad. In, in, in this case, he sees it in the Orient. He suggests or more theorizes from a distance that it might be found in other cultures who have been less affected by the particular, the particulars of our mental ills. He focuses on Japan a lot, proving himself to be a weeb. Uh, I say he theorizes because there's a lot of circumstantial evidence, things from the Japanese language and the margin, but not a whole lot of hard evidence, really. Uh, it's not his area of specialty or study, so I'm inclined to leave this, even though I sympathize with the idea, and wait for someone who actually has the specialty to address it. More or less, his argument is simply that other cultures have ways that are not as, he would say, corrupted by the left hemisphere thinking. They, they don't exist in a world that's constantly reifying and reproducing itself in the linear left hemispheric world that the West with the Enlightenment has been, and the Industrial Revolution has been building in itself for some time now. And then perhaps there's something we can learn from cultures that haven't had that so deeply embedded into them. Uh, then he moves to his conclusion. And here he just wraps up some of the key points that he made over the course of the book. He reminds us that he believes it to be profoundly true that the structure of our very intellect reflects the structure of the universe. He notes that science, no matter what people say, always requires a bit of a leap of faith. Um, he speaks of the importance of metaphor, again, in his concluding paragraphs, um, talking about and bringing up several examples from literature of, you know, the two souls in the breast, in one's breast, the two conflicting natures of man going against each other. And he suggests that there's some deep truth here that these philosophers, poets, novelists have all seen. Uh, and he concludes the book this, quote, when one puts that together with the fact that the brain is divided into two relatively independent chunks, which just happen broadly to mirror the very dichotomies that are being pointed to, alienation versus engagement, abstraction versus incarnation, the categorical versus the unique, the general versus the particular, and the part versus the whole, and so on, it seems like a metaphor that might have some literal truth. But if it turns out to be just a metaphor, I would be content. 
I have a high regard for metaphor. It is how we under yeah. It is how we come to understand the world. End quote. And uh, thus passes the master and his emissary into the west. Sick transit, Gloria Mundi. Well, boys, we did it. Made it through. It that and what a finish! Like what he he did an excellent job bringing it home. Uh, yeah, the idea of him being pretty pessimistic and saying, "Hey, yeah, no, like clearly the left is starting to dominate," but then also saying, "Yeah, but let's not get too ahead of ourselves. We don't necessarily, you know, we, we there is cause for hope. There is reason to believe that. Nope, we'll sort ourselves out eventually. The right hemisphere's primacy will see itself through in the end." I am skeptical uh, about the uh, the power of the say, Orient. Say, to say that again, uh, Stephen. You, you you bumped your mic, and there was a lot of static. Oh. Oh, sorry, sorry. I I am, uh, along with Brevin, somewhat skeptical of his analysis of Japanese culture, especially given that not 10 pages ago, he was saying how Japanese happiness had been dropping like a rock along with America and the general West when it was introduced to technologization and uh, urbanization. But at the same time, their culture is different enough that I would at least buy that maybe maybe their cultural upbringing has given them an edge that we do not, given... Um, given what the Enlightenment did to us, in essence. Um, but on the whole, yeah, what a phenomenal book. What an excellent book. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, the I description mean, of the culture, you know, that is dominated by the left hemisphere is so dramatic and demoralizing and recognizable. Mm-hmm. And while I have, you know, some doubts about that, I will say just as a piece of writing about, you know, in theory what the world would, would look like and how much it looks like our own, it's a powerful rhetorical case i have quibbles with it but let's stay on the positive at least for now yeah 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 i um yeah i finished this book and was and i was reflecting over the whole the whole piece of it and i was i was thinking that this is probably one of the more influential books on my thinking of like what are we and what are the experiences i'm having and like what does that mean just being able to get into really what's going on on the inside and then his his conclusion of like but it's okay to just experience it and that's indeed what you, I think, have to do. It's kind of this encouragement to not fight against necessarily, but at least lean into the master um, and the and the way of the right brain. I was um, one of the notes I put, put in the book. I, I took lots of annotation for these this last chapter, but on page four forty two, I was reading and just out of frustration, wrote, "Why isn't he Christian?" In the top, <laughs> because he's. I mean, he is like talking about how the incarnation is the perfect embodiment of our of our you know right hemisphere mythos and the coming together of matter and spirit and redemption and all this relationship and everything i'm just come home i mean i i don't know that he's not but you know oh he's I, not I, i'm fairly certain he's not oh you should, okay. he's very yeah. yes yeah well no uh i've heard him so self-describe mm. as very agnostic um okay he, Sure. He is very skeptical of anyone who says definitively there is no God, but he is also very skeptical of anyone who says definitively there is a God. He, he struck he me very much as a Jordan Peterson type. Yeah, yeah. I think, I. Yeah, oh, yeah. man. Oh. Yeah, like if you're a smart enough, uh, I don't know. Well, I don't want to necessarily go down that route. But there's definitely a breed of people who do a lot of thinking who can't help but come to the conclusion that they have to circle around the divine, e- even if they don't want to say that, you know, it shows up on in, in mass on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Well, every day, but looks, specifically yeah. I on mean, Sunday. Looks away. But his, um, yeah, I mean, a couple weeks ago, I'm not sure if it was before our last podcast or not, but I listened to the podcast that he did with Jordan Peterson, and it was... Mm-hmm. It was interesting for a lot of reasons. Um, first, because he was just running like laps around uh, WP, 
it was very funny because oh, yeah. like, you know, I think it was, I mean, it wasn't too bad. I think it was just that Jordan Peterson is used to being the smartest person in the room. And so he like has to dumb down complicated topics for, you know, the, the lady. Um, and then he gets into to the, the zoom room with McGillicrist and now he's trying to dumb down these concepts and McGillicrist like no it's not that simple at all stop and <laughs> I don't know it was it yep. was very yep. very good um also in case you guys are like just itching for more after this huge book he did talk about his new book that's coming out this summer he that did he said, matter with things he, he, he's the matter of thing yeah is it matter of things I thought it was matter with things but it may be matter of things I forget which one I don't know but it's like he was basically like Master and Emissary is just a preface to that. And it's apparently the length of the Bible. Oh. What do you think, guys? <laughs> <laughs> you thought Master Despair. and Emissary was bad. <laughs> no, this my, will take us years. <laughs> my my first thought when I so I, I was sitting in the park on my newly acquired hammock finishing this book. And my first thought as soon as I closed it after finishing it was like, ugh. That was great, but why is it the kind of thing that you have to experience as opposed to just like hear the arguments? It's such like a a, a right hemisphere way. It's like the only way to to, to get it is to go through it, mm-hmm. much like we have. I I think yeah, you, oh, you you can't just get a summary of what the arguments are. You won't understand what the what the case is. But <laughs> it's such a chore. It's such a chore. It really is. Lordy. All right. So let's talk about, <coughs> pardon, let's talk about our brief critiques of this chapter. Um, so I just wanted to say on the Japan part, I was not at all convinced. I think he was just throwing spaghetti and like he just listened. He like he watched a cool travel channel thing on Japan and was like, "Ooh, what if there's a place untouched by the in- 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 enlightenment? But unluckily for him, like I had, I just finished uh, like part six of like a 12 hour, maybe 18 hour uh, hardcore history on Japan in World War II, Supernova in the East. It's great. Um, Very good. And just talking about Japan's like unholy marriage of their imperial, the remnants of their imperial culture and like Western rationalization and just it all being deliberately imported and crafted to make this terrifying war machine. And it beggars belief how brutal the Japanese military was. And I mean that relatively. Like, in war, everyone does a little bit of war crimes. But the Japanese Imperial Army made war crimes into a hobby. And, like, some of the stories that they recount are just absolutely unbelievable. So I'm much less sanguine about his whole, oh, what if Japan is the land of, you know, cherry blossoms and the I vow is there, but also, like, war crimes. So I don't, I don't, by yeah. that, that that part of it at all. <laughs> well, so you have in the let's just go east in general. So you have China, which is super communist, very left brain, very control society, very panoptical. You've got North Korea, which makes China look like a joke. You've got Japan, who whose urbanization and uh, uh, te- technological society isolation. and yeah. isolation like is causing depression mm-hmm. to skyrocket. Um, which they have he, no, no children. Yep, yep. I guess I, I, the two exceptions I'm trying to, I, I'll try to be charitable. South Korea and India. I, I, those are the only two cultures I can think of in the East that might have a shot. Mass industrialization in both places. Yeah, yeah. I'm just not even gonna try. I don't. I, I, I think I, the, the only reason I give them a shot about. is because I don't know anything about them to like contradict it. But <laughs> Japan, North Korea, and China. It's like into ignorance. Well, to be fair, it sounds like he doesn't either. Yeah. Uh, I, 
I mean, truth be told, like, maybe if he's harkening back to, like, I don't know, medieval Japan, pre-medieval Japan, like, classical era Japan, but then again, he would just say, like, I, I would just say, well, like, look, I mean, romanticization was a time of the dominant of the right hemisphere, and that was in the West, so, like, I don't, I don't quite know what you're getting from this that is in the East, that isn't in the West, but... I, I, I get his his gist, kind of, like, you know, there's a famous class at Harvard that's, like, I don't remember what it's called, but it's, like, East versus West thinking, and there are all these great images of how it's... You know, how like thinking in the West broadly defined is different from thinking in the East broadly mm-hmm. defined. Like if there's an arrow and there's an obstacle in front of the arrow in the West, you go through the obstacle in the East, you go around the obstacle and just like, you know, fun visual images of like, here's how, you know, cultures approach problem or how, again, very broadly defined. No one's being nailed down to anything here, but like how there is a difference of approach and how the Western, you know, style of thinking that we've been exporting for the last 100 years Um can we cancel Brevin now for being racist? I, I'm just tired of being the one that's being canceled. <laughs> um, I actually do recall uh, having a conversation with one of my coworkers, who I'm very excited I get to get to see in a couple weeks. Um, but uh, he actually brought the analogy of, uh, or not the analogy, but the one study done with the fish that, when asked to, what I think it was like when asked to view an aquarium, uh, West, or various people from the West, various people from the East. Um, and then asked to describe it later on, the people from the West would describe the individual fish, and then the people from the East would describe the kind of the whole aquarium. Something to that effect. But actually, we, we were potentially going to go to a trip to um, uh, Southeast Asia for some some such business consultation thing. Um, and he, he had brought this up to me. He was talking to me. He's like, so this is one thing that you need to understand about Eastern cultures is they just kind of view things differently. And he brought that study as, a, as an example. I, I should also point out that I was going... We, it, it fell through and we never went, but I was also going along as kind of the, hey, Steven, can you can you go along and, and keep this one coworker in line? He's kind of crazy at times. Um, <laughs> I, was, I didn't have any other utility other than that. All right. So here's, so Steven, here's the thing at the water yeah. cooler. Here's the thing that you need to understand about the East. All right. Fish. Think about <laughs> how you look at fish. That's the key to everything. Yeah, yeah. It unlocks everything. What about, wait, wait, but, but guys, what about the dark fish? The dark fish. <laughs> yes, that's such a good tweet. Oh my god. Okay. Uh, I, okay. I started uh, reading into it, and it was incredible. Like it's this whole okay scientific uh, like so, whole. So so just like just to finish up, are we done with Master and his emissary? No, that was no, a- I, I have one more criticism. Okay, fine. Then let me just say uh, about the dark fish really fast. Okay, so the, the, I. <laughs> This is a tangent, but the, but there's some like one of Hawking's theories that's been proved or something, something about dark matter. Who cares? But the yeah. but the the parallel was like like what if you know there was this thing on on Earth that was like this giant that made up like 95 percent of mass, but we didn't know what it was, and this was like this mysterious thing on Earth. It's like trying to you know drive home the dark matter thing, and then some guy replies to this guy who's asking this question, and apparently down in some layer of the ocean, I can't pronounce it. I I don't know what it's called. But there's this layer of tiny fish uh, that apparently makes up, in theory, like 95% of fish matter in the ocean. (laughs) Of of all fish in in the ocean. And it, like, disrupts sonar. You, like, can't map it. Like, you know that it's there, but it's always moving and just un... They're mostly mostly undiscovered. Like, we have no idea what they are. Yeah. And you can't yeah. lock it down, and it's just like dark fish, dark fish in the ocean that are just Which, yeah. this m- mysterious mass that no one knows anything about. But we we know that it's there, and it makes up all the fish. But that wasn't anyway. a satire. That wasn't like just no. It was joke. real. Oh my no, god! No, that was a real, real thing. thing. I just read that and rolled my eyes and thought it was someone being like moderately clever. 
Interesting. No, no it's a real thing. And they also so, uh, apparently suspect that there are at least 18 species of large marine mammals that we just like don't know what they are, but they're probably there. <laughs> Loch Ness. It's Nessie. She's there. We know it. Fan theory accepted. 100%. Okay, Stephen, your yeah. critique. So for the, for the record, I actually, I do mo- for the most part buy his what would the, the world look uh, dictated by the left hemisphere look like? I actually do buy it, but there was some part of me that was reading through it and just being like, okay, so you're looking around at the Western world, seeing everything you hate, and then attributing it to the left hemisphere. Like, come on, guy. Um, yeah, no, I had that ex- exact same thought. It's like, oh, very convenient. If you had written this in 1940, I would respect this massively. But writing it in 2010, yeah. eh, yeah. it's kind of, I don't know, too convenient by half. Yeah. That said, I mean, at risk of being canceled again um the last year and a half half the kind of extreme uh, the extreme uh attitudes of people towards covid um i mean he wrote this before covid this was well before covid and covid was not anywhere near the radar um and especially his notice of people are like when death comes up people will be very eager to blame someone or something other than themselves or like people will be very quick to lock on to a particular target and i mean the politicization of covid was almost comical if it weren't so sad um and that that did strike me as being uh very just kind of spot on like that that was very predictive of him to to notice that so for the most part i agree there was some part of me that was just like okay you're kind of cherry picking here but at the same time like just because he is cherry picking doesn't mean he's wrong it just means eh, you may have tried to provide at least some good faith counterexamples, but on the whole, I don't well, disagree. It's, yeah, I mean, I, I really like that bit, like the part about the illness. It's almost as if we have a self, we, we tell ourselves these self-contained narratives of what our way of life is and are completely unwilling to um, open up to other perspectives. It's incredibly mm-hmm. left brain, and it's also um, featured in the Atlantic. That it is. Now that, Brevin, is a transition. I I object to this thievery, this pillaging, this this crime usurpation. That has been, this usurpation that has been committed against my solemn and sacred duty to do transitions for this podcast. Revan uh, is dead. Long live Sam. Long live Sam. All right. In Sam. the latest edition of the Atlantic, uh, George Packer wrote the article uh, "How America Fractured into Four Parts," and um, it's a very long article. It takes up like fourteen pages in the physical edition of the Atlantic. Which is a lot, um, but it was good. I I thought it was um, thought provoking. He he gives very sober but still scathing critiques of um, what he sees as the four main narratives of America. And I do have some problems with his argument, his conclusion. But I think it's fun and will lead to some good analysis. So um, he starts off by saying that nations tell themselves stories about what they are. Um, who they are, where they came from, and what they want to be. And that America has historically, at least for the last hundred years or so, existed as two main narratives, the Democrats and the Republicans. And we subsume all of our other narratives underneath those main banners, and it's held together. Uh, See George Nash for a better description of how the Republicans did that via fusionism. However, he is now uh, positing that America has fractured into four primary narratives. They don't necessarily fit into uh, the party lines anymore, though, as a side note, I will add that he spends the majority of his time talking about uh, narratives that would fall on the right uh, and very little time on the left, uh, which probably typical for the Atlantic. I don't want to stare too hard in the mirror. 
However, um, he his his descriptions of these different narratives are, are very good and, if nothing else, enjoyable to read. So his first um, narrative is Free America. Uh, this is the story that is libertarian. The entire centric, the entire focus is on personal freedom. He's clear that it's not about Tocqueville's art of self-government and that kind of liberty, but it's more like um, the Lockean, Jeffersonian, classical liberal view of the individual um, completely unencumbered by the government. Uh, he, he cites Nash talking about how this was allied with uh, the traditional conservatives and the anti-communists in the Republican Party through most of the 1950s. Um, but it was also allied with the segregationists and with Barry Goldwater. It's uh, main, it mainly follows Hayek and the opposition to planning. Uh, he's quote that planning leads to dictatorship. It completely explains all of our um, problems, much like Marxism. Everything, every person is a self-made man and must uh, become that. It was driven into the uh, mainstream uh, by a reaction to the 1970s of expansion of government uh, in Reaganism. And Reagan was indeed their main leading figure for most of the 1980s. However, now today, it's a hollow city. It doesn't have any kind of character. People are everything. They're taxpayers, they're employees, but they're not citizens. And without communism or Reagan to hold all those people together, it falls apart. And basically, he um, stereotypes it as now consisting of just talk radio uh, hacks and uh, Twitter freakouts, which interesting and uh, pretty descriptive. Um, there's zero self-government going on. It's all about just freedom. And freedom becomes a value in and of itself with no um, with no extension beyond that. So that consists of the free America uh, narrative. Second narrative is smart America. And as I read this, I felt a little bit called out. I think that I probably fall, if I'm going to be completely honest, into the smart America camp more than me, but um, any of the other ones. Uh, you two probably do as well. Um, it's modernist to the extreme. We adapt to, I'm going to use we because why not? Uh, we adapt to modern society very, very easily uh, using Netflix, you know, Hulu, all the uh, iPhones, all these modern uh, conveniences just shift into our life very nicely. It's the upper class and not only the upper class, but the credentialed upper class uh, embracing meritocracy completely. Uh, it does allow for a little bit of government intervention, but that's just to even the playing field. Everything after that comes from hard work and um, working up the ladder to succeed. Uh, this also, interestingly enough, includes many Democratic po politicians. Historically, this is actually the position that the traditional, uh, using that in air quotes, traditional Democratic Party has embraced since the 1970s, as it moved from the party of the working class, um, and I might add the party of Jim Crow, more into the educated professionals. Um, it's for free trade, deregulation, and balanced budgets. Their biggest saint is Bill Clinton. Uh, for all of his moderate, very modern innovations. Now, this this group is primarily isolated. It's not in the mainstream at all. Uh, they work in tiny bubbles, um, tiny internally closed bubbles, where they graduate from the right schools and get the right jobs, never having to interact with other classes. The only time they interact is when the working class is serving them. And that working class sees no means of entry into this uh, smart America. Uh, it's basically as... Uh, as Packer says, writing professionals and next to stinking workers. And again, this class is very sensitive about national identity. They're far more globalized than the other narratives of America. And indeed, it's not very comfortable as patriotism. On the complete opposite end, you have real America. And this is embodied by Sarah Palin, which uh, is very fun. Uh, it's, it, it's, it, um, it 
consists of basically the working class. It's very, very aggressive towards the upper class and the highly educated. And this is why he prescribes, uh, or what he explained, used it to explain her hatred of Barack Obama, is this guy who, for whatever reason, worked through the Ivy Leagues and is now sitting in the peak of the meritocracy. And the working class hates that for new, numerous reasons. Uh, the most important value, or one of the most important values, is authenticity. And for a very long time, the Democrats dominated this class. For, for years, um, it was anti-intellectual. That democracy shouldn't require an education because democracy is us. It's the people. Uh, and looking all the way back to even Andrew Jackson as embodying the real America. It's also very religious. It's evangelical and fundamentalist. Uh, the truth should be incredibly simple to understand, just like democracy. It's just us using this very clearly thought out knowledge, I might add very left brain. Um, another characteristic of it is that it's white, uh, predominantly a, a very white group of people, and it's nationalist. The narrative is that of white Christian nationalism, that the economy is collapsing around us and, um, and our national unity has been destroyed by, by unnecessary wars, by the corporate America through the Great Recession, and the, those who are suffering the most are the real Americans. Uh, the Republican Party, for about the last 30 or 40 years, has uh, has embraced this class. They've been a low-level part of that party. But it's always been very deep down. They, they've spent most of their time trumpeting the free market and the free America um, narrative and just incorporating this into it. That all changed in 2016. When Trump brought this to the forefront and spoke directly to real America, um, all of a sudden, free America was not a consistent narrative and was seen as hollowed out, uh, meaningless. Trump was able to become the leader of real America through his honesty and authenticity. Uh, racism, as Packer says, cannot entirely explain what Trump is, though it may play a small a small part of it. He's a demagogue who, who feeds off of a popular image and um, is able to carry that as far as he did. The final narrative of America is just America. And this one was, I think, my the most interesting one to read, especially coming from somebody who is, or uh, coming reading Packer, who seems to be quite progressive. Uh, just America doesn't buy the progressive narrative that's sold to us by the mainstream, that um, the celebrating progress, that we had our first black president. And so we've, we've conquered racism. Uh, this this America was mobilized out of, out of college campuses by videos of police killings of black men. Um, it assumes that America can never be just, nor has it ever been just. And it's picking up all these ideas that have been seeped into it for years, mostly in college campuses, first through sociology, uh, psychoanalysis, gradually through other critical studies. He compares it to the libertarians in the 1970s. Free market ideas had always been around, and they just finally found them and picked them up and brought them into the mainstream. Now, in the late 2000s, we see the young and disillusioned picking up these ideas from Foucault, um, critical analysis, feminist analysis, and pushing it into the mainstream. It's a complete objection to the Enlightenment. Um, and it's not necessarily Marxist, which which is an interesting distinction. I know that lots of times we equivocate critical theory and Marxism, but he's clear to say there are different things. Uh, language is far more important than material conditions. And identity politics uh, becomes key to this narrative. They even take down figures like Martin Luther King, who was still working within their supposed terrible Enlightenment framework of um, of liberty and freedom in his um, in his speeches. It uses the subjective language of impression um, in order to be un universally um, embraced and irrefutable. This language uh, 
disqualifies many from speaking if they don't know the lingo. And it's completely, it's, it's embodied in its most prominent form in the 1619 projects is the, the biggest and most popular work. Uh, embracing one view of history, distinctly trying to give one view of history while also being very conscious of uh, ignoring other views. So he then pivots and he says that this narrative is, is a huge problem because it can't speak or refuses to speak to many of the problems that are actually facing our world. The complex causes of poverty, black-on-black violence, uh, the negative consequences of defunding the police, all of these ideas are incomprehensible and indeed um, ignored and pushed out by this um, America. There's little actual policy beyond symbolic and superficial shifts um, in funding and um, actions, but nothing actually changes structurally. And he gets back to he goes back to what actually this this America consists of: class. It's all centered around the elite and the well-educated, those who went to college and absorbed this um, view and this narrative. The people who are protesting um, last year against the death of George Floyd were not those who were actually being oppressed, but a large amount of them, a disproportionate amount of them were making over $100,000 a year. And they were coming out of the smart America. However, they were rejecting the meritocracy and asking for far deeper changes. They're, through this, they were reviving the socialist statements from the 1930s and carrying on that uh, narrative. So those are his four narratives. He concludes by saying that each narrative provides its own unique values and actually points out something that the other narratives are completely um, oblivious of or have no idea. Uh, however, they also attack each other and create stark divisions. All of these say that America is dying, but Packer says that's not the case. We, we're not necessarily dying, but we have to learn how to live together. None of these narratives are going to go away. And indeed, the only narrative that works must allow all four of them to function together. And so therefore, he gets to kind of a bit of a nebulous conclusion, but uh, good all the same is that we need to go to viewing each other as equal Americans with the same rights and opportunities. Um, seems to defer back to both founding documents and his consistent trend of uh, Tocquevillianism throughout the, throughout the essay. So I thought it was good. I thought his conclusion was a little bit weak, but I think that Tocqueville does have... Um, promise for an answer to these divisions. And I also loved his sober take of kind of all these different views and being able to see genuinely how they arose, but also their deep, deep weaknesses. Yeah. What'd you guys think? Uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the article. Um, he, he seemed at least fairly even handed with his criticisms, but kind of at least trying to understand where each meta narrative, or not sure if it'd be a meta narrative or narrative, probably meta narrative um, was coming mm. from. Uh, he clearly mm-hmm. was coming at it from a at least somewhat progressive um, point of view, but at the same time, he seemed pretty critical both of smart America and of just America, or what he called uh, "quote unquote" unjust America would be, because according to that group, just America is a contradiction in terms. Um, mm-hmm. He did a good job at kind of pointing out the flaws of kind of all of the above, but also where they were coming from, um, and I think he. Uh, he he had a, com- a couple of comments around real America that I actually really enjoyed because one of the one of the sad things I I noticed was real th- this med narrative of real America of both Palin being the forerunner to Trump and then Trump himself I uh, he, he was clearly hitting a note that was reverberating with people they felt forgotten even if they weren't they felt ignored even if they weren't they felt disdained even if they weren't all of which I'm actually at least moderately sympathetic with it does seem that a lot of kind of the, the working class America were forgotten. And he he told them that he'd listen to them. He 
didn't give two poops about them, but he at least pretended to. And talking with coworkers and other and other people who were on the more liberal side, you could kind of see the disdain in their voice. And there there was kind of this sad, like, you could see why Trump was able to hijack it, just as I'm also very sympathetic with a lot of my generation, including myself. We came out of college with light, lots of great, bright ideas. It's, well, actually, no, moreover, I came out of high school with a lot of great, bright ideas of how awesome our country is. And then kind of that disillusionment when you find out that your country actually did a lot of horrible things back in the day. And then you look around and you see police shootings and you see lots of injustices and you think this isn't at all what I thought it was. That disillusionment turns into something like just America with this meta narrative of we want things to get better. Like, I don't know, just on the on the whole, this I think is an article, if nothing else, of an author who does a pretty good job even handedly even handedly saying this is where these ideas are coming from. Here's the strengths, here are the weaknesses. And I found that very encouraging. I think so. I, I will say that my reading of this article has been somewhat sparse, unfortunately. But I do think that the part that struck me is sort of a conclusion that I've come to across the past few years, which is this article points out the erosion of the free America in that it's much more conceptual. It's very top heavy. You could almost draw like the lines that you would draw in between these four Americas are quite fascinating because the free America from the perspective of real America are the conservative elites that have abandoned them and their interests for hollowed out international corporatist libertarianism. The smart America are these elites that nominally believe, you know, let's say socially liberal, socially liberal, fiscally conservative. That would be smart America to real America. And then just America or unjust America, whatever you want to call it, are the children of smart America who now are growing up and seeing the hollowness of everything that free America and smart America left behind. So I think there's a lot of utility um, in what he's laid out here. Uh, yeah. And the path forward is unclear. I, I did think it was a, an interesting take. Uh, he said something to the effect of, um, uh, was it was true America being like, they thought they were free America until it was either 2008 or 2016 when they realized like, no, we actually want the government to make us better. Like we actually want the government intervene, intervening and saving mm -hmm. our jobs. We actually want the government coming in and reinstituting coal manufacturing or what have you. Um, mm -hmm. I did find that an exceedingly smart take. That that did seem to to capture something. Yeah, one. I, I'm trying to think of a criticism of him, like like one criticism I'm working on, but I don't think that's actually correct. Which means he's good. Uh, is that you know what narratives does he exclude? But there are niche narratives. I mean, there are loads of niche narratives that he can't address. You know, you've got the you've got the nuanced, you know, center left that's like, you know, trying to be innovative. I think the Andrew Yangs, right, the tech crowd, who's like, no, no, we can just we can just maybe 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 that's smart America, but it's not quite smart America because it's actually in favor of more socially um, socially liberal or economically liberal policies uh, more than just equalizing the playing field. Or you've got, you know. Catholic America, or like the Rad Trad America, the Benedict options, um, who, I mean, might fit into real America, but not really. Um, They're and smart like, Americans who have gone and bought themselves homes in rural Virginia. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so I don't know. I mean, like, I think there are lots of niche groups that don't perfectly fit into this, but I think it's, it's a nice, it's a nice summary. And I think gives a good language to be able to talk about 
things going on. I, I, I think if there's one criticism, it would be that this is all too generous to Americans having any kind of consistency in their thinking or their ideology. Really, what this should just be is an article about schizophrenic America and, you know, 30% of independents who have completely beliefs about everything and nothing lines up in any kind of ideological analysis of consistency. And they, you know, they believe conspiracy theories on the one hand, and then they're incredibly critical of an entire other category of conspiracy theories on the other, and you absolutely cannot pin them down anywhere. That's what this article should have been, is schizophrenic America. Yeah, actually, I really like that. That, that would be an interesting, like, at the very least, a fifth category of conspiracy theory America. Um, hmm. I So I did recently uh, read an article, um, the New York Times ethicist, who I've, I've read a few articles by them. I'm actually... As much as I was skeptical when I first read New York Times Ethicist. Oxymoron. That's three flags right there. New York Times and Ethicist. All of those are bad things, Stephen. All of those are very bad. <laughs> so with this one particular <laughs> essay, so the, the writer in um, said something to the effect of, I have a very conservative friend slash like some tertiary friend, like a friend of a, or like the spouse of a friend or the friend of a spouse or something like that where they don't see each other all the time. But like, and they said like, Oh, they're con con. I get along with them. Great. But they're constantly posting super conservative stuff and they occasionally bring it up at dinner parties or whatever. And I'm just like, should I even associate with this person? I completely disagree with them. And the, the editor was actually smart or uh, the, the author of this article was actually quite witty in what he did. He was like, well, you've got to understand. I mean, you know, this conservative guy thinks that they have, you know, really rationally constructed their set of views and the, they've made their worldview from all their, their particular argumentation. But really, they've like, they probably just absorbed it from the environment that they're in and how, like, just kind of the, the various teachings they've grown up with. Here's the thing, though, you've done the exact same thing yourself. Um, and like, maybe if you actually talk with that person and listen to their arguments and they do the same, you can actually have a rational conversation and maybe learn. At, you probably won't change their mind. They probably won't change your mind, but at least you'll learn something about it. Um, and I was actually quite impressed with their being just like, just freaking have a conversation with the other side and you'll find out that they're actually not so bad. Um, and that at least somewhat comes to mind with these four meta narratives is it, mm. it's just kind of a pity that they've all drawn their kind of drawn their lines in the sand. And while ostensibly smart and uh, just America may talk occasionally and then free and um, what is it? Free and real America. Mm -hmm. It seems that they would be allies against a greater evil but even then they don't talk a ton uh, if anything they seem to almost divide by class um so it's like right left divided by class so up down i guess um it, it is kind of like i would actually apply that to like man if these people would just talk to each other instead of just demonizing each other all the time it'd be it'd be nice mm -hmm. this is why we need the commies so we can all fight them together we now will stop talking. demonizing yeah. e we will stop demonizing each other if the demons are abroad that's, exactly that's how this works well we tried doing that with the middle east but that was just too half-hearted no so, uh, that was that was half-assed let's all be honest that was geez, louise that was lame well russia's uh, giving it their best go at being uh, being the next bad guys and same with china but like they're, they're not going evil empire enough come on guys no yeah they need to be more dramatic they, about yeah it. they need to build Barad-Dur, just like i don't know mm. annex an east european nation and build Barad-Dur. then we'll be like oh actually they are the bad guys oh. uh we but could do North Korea, but they're just too pathetic. Yeah, there I have it. The big huge pyramid. Oh, I did see. Uh, see, or I watched a YouTube video about that. It was fascinating. Mm -hmm. And so, North, North Korea North. would would be threatening if they didn't look so hungry. 
Uh, oh. Speaking of being hungry, when one is hungry, one can get upset. When one is upset, one might rant. Steven, what do you have for us? Oh, frick, I forgot. Um, I've got two. Go for it, Sam. I'll try to think of one when you're going. I, I mean, these these are, so it's, it's two, it's kind of popcorn rants. I've got two little rants that are self-explanatory of just, like, the death throes of COVID um, hysteria on both sides that are just humorous to me. Is this an on update the right, on I your thought, previous excellent entry into this category? What was my what was my previous excellent entry? Do you, do you remember the remember. previous one that was like one of the most hilarious things that has ever been on this podcast, which is the person saying, I don't want to take off my mask, though I've oh, been yes. vaccinated because people will think I'm a Republican. And then one guy saying, I don't want to take off my mask because it, people it, will it, think that I was vaccinated. No, no, it was. No, it was. The best part of it was, oh, great. Now they'll think I got vaccinated. Oh. It's so good. Oh my God, so, so the two, beautiful. The two greatest things are I learned today. Um, uh, I, and I didn't. It was it was a, a coworker sent this to me, and I hope I can talk about this. But uh, it was the Epoch Times. They started giving out they gave out gifts for like supporters and whatever. And their most recent gift is a massive infographic of the COVID, like who caused the COVID like pandemic. And it was basically like one line of China, like all like it was a his, it was a timeline. And it was all the China's events and it just blew up over the whole world. And it was basically like December one, it started in China. And I'm just I was just pained because it was just so we don't it was so reductionistic and not helpful and so unscientific and posing as it. But it's like not unscientific to the point where you can really argue with it it's like well yeah we think it started in china we don't know if that's the exact date of it but it's unhelpful so anyway i was just annoyed with that on the other hand i was in chicago a couple weeks ago and walked by this bookstore in oak park and there was this incredible sign that said we believe in science and the covid vaccine is legitimate however masks are required in solidarity for those of minority races who have lost their lives at a disproportionate rate, Amazing. which I just, it was just like the layers down was really great Ooh, and really, I mean, boy. devastating. I, I, I mean, it, it, devastating the losses, but yeah, it, I, I think the science speaks for itself. That's a whole lot right there. My God, that's yeah. uh, that's pretty incredible. And yeah. Sam, always the centrist, always got a both sides at both sides. Beautiful. Wait, no, that's my shtick. Gosh darn it, you're stealing my shtick. You guys are both the You guys are both boring centrists. I'm the only person who has opinions on this podcast. I, I do have a uh, take. Is oh, I've, yeah. I, well, third take is I've stopped. I've, I've stopped wearing a mask because I'm fully vaccinated. Right? Mm-hmm. Like I was never anti anti masker, but now I don't wear it. And I walk into stores where they say if you're vaccinated, you you don't have to wear a mask. And I am in this huge supermarket and I cannot find a single other person wearing a mask, not wearing a mask. And I'm like, okay, we are at a vaccination crisis right now. We need to get these people vaccinated. Like it's available in the back of the store. Why? I don't know. I just, I, I, I just, I I have a scenario in my head that will never happen, but I, I want it to happen sort of where I'm not wearing my mask somewhere and someone comes up and is like, why aren't you wearing a mask? I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize you were anti-vax, you know, something like that. But uh, so Please for guess. for my rant, I have a positive one uh, today. Uh, just last weekend, I was gifted a hammock, and I've never owned my own hammock. My wife has a hammock, and I use it sometimes. But now that I have my own hammock, I feel empowered to just, you know, take out the hammock and go sit in it. And I did today for the first time, uh, sitting in my own hammock, not sitting in a hammock at all. And I went to the park nearby, which is the Iwo Jima Memorial. And I discovered something that I'd forgotten, which is that hammocking is an end 
in and of itself, it is its own telos. It's just like, it is a sufficient goal of other things in life to aim at hammocking in a park with a book, without a book, just rolling around in, in the hammock. It's amazing. And uh, so this summer, folks, get out there and get in your hammocks, because if you've forgotten what it's like, uh, you need to remind yourself of it. Noted. I, I've only been hammocking once or twice, I think. Really? We should hammock uh, when we're together this summer. Ooh, now we're talking. Yeah. All right, Stephen. Uh, wait, Did Brian, I... didn't we used to hammock together at, mm-hmm. at school? I bet, yeah. Yeah, I forgot about that. Mm-hmm. Good times. Okay, I, I remember my rant. I remember my rant. So, something, something, uh, like... Well, I'm not even sure what something something should be followed up. You'll you'll realize it. So I was at a, an NSF uh, grant funding thing meeting. Um, so I'm I'm meeting w- along with some other grad students and my advisor, and we're talking. We we've talked with the lobbyists, and now we're talking with um some congressperson's aide, pretty much telling them, hey, NSF is great. Uh, the government should fund the national sciences more. Um, which is I I would argue pretty good on uh, on the whole, good thing. Uh, you know, society, we need our technology, even though it's slowly killing us because it's a left hemisphere oriented mode of being, but that's also how I get funding. So, you know, what can you do? Um, but, uh, one of the talking points that was brought up in this larger conference, they were like, okay, so when you're talking with your congressperson here, here are kind of the beats to hit that will convince them that yes, indeed funding is, is good to, to send to the sciences. One of the cool things was actually, and this isn't my rant, but one of the cool things was that it was a largely bipartisan issue that kind of Everyone left, right, center was on board. Like, yep, sciences need to be funded, which is which is really cool. I actually really like that. Um, I found it encouraging. But one of the, the one of the talking points that we were told to bring up was, hey, so China is now funding the sciences more than the U.S. And so, if the U.S. wants to remain competitive, slash, if we want to kind of stay ahead of China, which would be a good thing for us, uh, we should do that. And this one social psychologist buzzes in and says. Hey, I think it's pretty ho- problematic that uh, we're kind of competing with China, and, and I think that, like, with a lot of violence towards Asian Americans and whatnot, it's like, okay, wait, hang on. First of all, no one said we don't like Chinese people. No one said we don't like we just don't like. Uh, I, like, no one, no one's encouraging this. People are encouraging combating the China regime because literally no one thinks that the China regime is good. They have like one of the lowest scores on do we think that these are good people in the world like north korea is beating them on that index but not by much like they're slaughtering weaker muslims they're propping up north korea they're instituting insane panoptical control over their citizens how is this even a conversation like they're not good and thankfully one of the one of the people that the main guy completely was cowtailed and was like well no we're doing this out of respect for china because they're doing so well we actually this is a healthy competition thankfully i'm not sure if it was another one of the the chair people or whatever but she buzzes in it's like so ip stuff is a huge issue because they're just kind of stealing all of our stuff like they're just kind of stealing a lot of our patents and the stuff that we own and making it their own. And so that's not cool. So like cybersecurity would be great to invest in, wouldn't it? So it, it sounds like if we wanted to support um, those people, the best thing to do would be to develop the sciences. I mean, you can make the argument, right? And then just, just, just give it to them. Yeah. Yeah, there we go. We should invest right. more so there that China can win. You're welcome. Okay, social psychologist. Go. <sighs> Yay, gods. You you literally can't make it up that 
Ah, counterpoint from the from sociology. Uh, actually, China should win. Nice. Thanks, sociology. Thanks what a great contribution. contribution. And all of the real scientists <laughs> in the room are just like, oh my gosh. Oh uh, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm a... Stephen. I forgot how much I missed. I missed your rants. <laughs> the the passionate ones where at some point you mm-hmm. throw your glasses. <laughs> <laughs> It happens every so often. This is one of them. There's a reason McIntyre had a whole chapter dedicated to why sociology is a joke. It's so true. And as a, you know, quasi-social scientist, wannabe social scientist, I wholeheartedly agree. But then again, they are my competition. Mm -hmm. Um, Given I ascribe to political science or fake science. Social science isn't real. It's fine. It should be political philosophy. It's closer to philosophy, not science. And that is a good thing. Like That is is fine. it became political science because of the sociologists. Thanks a lot, sociologists. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I kind of formed this opinion in the first semester of grad school that like the only real, there's like some technical areas of like politics study that you can do, but really the only real political theory is just like broad area studies. That's, that's, as, that's about as high as you can go. Anything bigger than that stops being real, um, except for very, very broad um, circumstances. Like, for example... Nuclear weapons. Okay, this is a, this is a tangent, right? But like you know, realism and talking about nukes. You can you know do that theory you know uh, as much as you want. But for the entire Cold War, you're only talking about the U.S. and Russia. It's not as if there's like this massive you know world of widgets with nukes with whom this theory is relevant. You're you're only talking about two nuclear superpowers you might as well just do area studies like there isn't a broader application of your theory it's not real you're just making it up um anyway never mind that's not that's neither here nor there uh any parting shots in any other uh field of academic study before we close out this podcast no it's all mm-hmm. all of the other ones are good great all right so for everyone well i wouldn't go that far but well no no <laughs> For everyone here at the Problem with Reading Podcast, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. I'm Sam. And uh, the master is betrayed, y'all. But the book's over, so I guess we still win. The master is dead, along with the emissary, I guess. And we're, we won't live long either. Emissary. Oh, man. Well, no, I mean, like, I'm just wondering if it's like, I don't know. I mean, Brevin, you were talking about this with high fantasy, how it's like it's always about like a 15 year old male who goes off and does this like crazy quest. And it's basically like the fact that most fiction is just written and the main audience it appeals to is like it's written to appeal to a certain audience and it puts this person in like the most heroic light. So mm-hmm. it makes sense by that. Like the Pope would love this book that involves like this like runaway Pope who's running an underground church in Israel after his, the Vatican is carpet bombed. I mean, it makes sense, right? It's Pope power fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> it's Pope's ultimate fantasy. So, so yes, that, that, that's a really excellent point. But also, but also, I forget who was making the, the commentary, but I, I think that the... Oh, wait, no, we were talking about this. Everything blurs. But with the whole Eucharist controversy on, on, on Twitter and everyone all the non-Catholics and all the people who would uh, now I'm not Catholic, but I went to Catholic school and here's my opinion on this. And all these people that are like, this is making me leave the church. It's like, okay, well, good riddance, heretic. <laughs> um,